Welcome to The Future Strategist with James Miller. Today, my guest is Christina Hoff Summers, a former philosophy professor, a scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, and a well-known critic of what she calls grievance feminism. She is the author of several books, including Who Stole Feminism? She has an extensive video series on YouTube called The Factual Feminist that has attracted around 1.5 million viewers. She is, in my opinion, one of the leading critics of campus political correctness. Uh, Christina, welcome to The Future Strategist. Oh, I'm glad to be here. So how did you get involved in critiquing mainstream academic feminism? Kind of by accident. Years ago, the chair of my department asked me to teach a course in feminist theory. I sent away for texts. I sent away for the leading um, uh, treatises on the state of women, and I was very disappointed by what what I saw. So I began to criticize it, and basically, I don't think I I, I haven't stopped. <laughs> it's never gone away, and unfortunately, I, I did write a book about it. It started out as an article for the Atlantic, but it became Who Stole Feminism, and. It's as relevant today as when I wrote it. It's just the problems are more severe and more widespread. So when you when you started to teach this course, I guess political correctness wasn't nearly as big a deal as it is today. Oh, I, I wasn't. The term wasn't known to me. It was. It came. That came a few years later. This would be in the probably the late eighties. The term we had the first so-called culture war in the early nineties. And uh, I, I just wasn't prepared for, I mean, as a college professor, I always thought it was a sacred commandment. Thou shalt teach both side of, sides of the argument. These textbooks were uh, just a, a set of mutually reinforcing readings. And the purpose was to raise the student's consciousness, not to introduce them to a debate with, with different sides and, you know, let, let them decide for themselves. It was already, it was preordained. So it was more advocacy than truth seeking. Exactly. Um, I mean, I, I suppose one response to this could be, well, that's everything in almost every field. You know, people don't like to change their beliefs. I mean, chemists, you have a belief about how something works. You think it's right. You think that everyone else is wrong. So why bother presenting their views? So you're, but, oh, we don't, I mean, <laughs> a chemistry would be different. Uh, in philosophy, it's about evaluating arguments. It's about, uh, you know, rival points of view on fundamental questions in you know, metaphysics or ethics. I was teaching ethics. And so if you were, if it an issue like abortion or capital punishment, you look at the best arguments on both sides. Mm -hmm. And I was, it never was my goal for the students to agree with what opinion I happen to have. Sometimes my opinions would change on these social issues the more I read. So I, in philosophy, it's uh, almost always uh, more, you know, argument, counter-argument. What's the justification that people give for this? I mean, would they agree with you that they're just trying to push one point of view? Or would they say it's, you know, it's worth it. This is the issues are so important. We should just be giving our viewpoint. Yeah, I think from their perspective, they're very, they're very excited. They continue to be excited that for the first time in history, large numbers of women are 
doing philosophy, theorizing about women. It's been done exclusively by men. And that was exciting. And also, they I think many of them felt that they were discovering this, this you know, like the, a lost continent of, you know, of women's reality. And they were energized and, and continue to be excited and eager to share this with students. And um, they also seem to think that a lot of this information has been hidden. Women have been silenced. This story hasn't been heard before. So why waste precious class time repeating what, from their point of view, is uh, a male way of knowing, a male way of understanding, which has been harmful to women, and uh, move on with 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 progress, but uh, you know, just more reading readings based on justice and enlightenment and progress. What what is the quality of the arguments they make? I mean, given that they exclude the other side, are they at least making arguments that are intellectually rigorous and fact based and are subject to being falsified? Well, in fairness to them, they they probably would say there's controversy. But it's because there are many different schools of uh, of grievance feminism. They all they all agree that we live in a patriarchy, and that um, the system is rigged against women, but to varying degrees. And then some of them, you know, you have uh, quarrels between eco feminists and Marxist feminists and postmodern feminists and this, these different schools. But it's the full gamut from A to B. Is that it, as they say, it's, you know, they've left out, I mean, for example, the school of thought I support, I'm very much uh, an equity feminist, what in the feminist theory text is called liberal feminism, and it's dismissed, it's dismissed as a relic of the past, mm-hmm. and, and there's, and, and not really defended, so that bothered me too, and, and I tried to provide a defense. What's the main difference between equity feminism and, and what you call grievance feminism? Well, equity feminism is grounded in the European Enlightenment and principles that enshrined in the United States Constitution, and it's simply, uh, you know, granting to women the basic rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, including women in the Enlightenment. <laughs> and um, grievance feminism is quite different. It is largely evolved from Marxism and many of the practitioners make use of uh, ideas of of his modern day interpreters, more recent interpreters, and Marcuse, Foucault of course, uh, Paolo Freire, and so that it's a different school of thought. Now this, the feminism I believe in is very much grounded in liberal principles. We believe that women's rights, you know, uh, women's overall well-being means you know that they are such principles of free speech and due process this is all very important to a liberal feminist less important from the point of view of a, a style of feminism grounded in Marxism uh, just because of their analysis of society and their view of uh, knowledge uh, I think in some many uh, the feminists I'm talking about now that would be called intersectional feminism. They believe that um, knowledge has been the, uh, you know, controlled by by men, and so they they just view what they're doing in the classroom as 
kind of breaking down an old system and not succumbing to the ploys of the sex gender system, as they call it. So they have a reason. I just don't think it's a good good reason. Let me, you know, oh, so. sorry. Let me give you a sort yeah, of very on. cynical interpretation of what they're, what's happening. And this, I'm not claiming this is right. But often when people try to protect themselves from debate, it's because they know their arguments are weak or they know they're not smart enough to debate. So you just rule debate off limits. Do you think that could be what's happening, that there's scholars who like, well, we would lose in a fair exchange of ideas, so we'll just decide a fair exchange of ideas is wrong for reasons? Yeah, I, I don't. I mean, it's always complex why people do what they do. I think uh, it, it did become easy for them to dismiss critics as cranks, to dismiss uh, skeptics as backlashers. That's the term they use became very easy and um, so I'm rarely invited I, I speak at a lot of universities and colleges rarely invited by the gender studies department they would say oh why are you inviting her that's a waste of time and they do not debate me okay mm -hmm. I mean it's not always true sometimes they do but mostly not and the feminists have really taken over colleges. I mean, there's a lot of feminists in top administrative positions. There's huge women's studies departments. I mean, maybe you could claim, you know, 40 years ago that this was a minority view that needed protection, but now on college campuses, it's the dominant view. Absolutely. It's ridiculous. Some will say, oh, well, isn't it good that we have a radical vanguard, you know, sort of people out there on the periphery with wild ideas? And I'm willing to say that's often good. But that doesn't describe what's happening now. The, they're they're inside. They're the insiders. I'm very much the outsider, and uh, any critic is automatically consigned to the periphery because they they as I said they have a word for you, which is a uh, backlasher. Mm -hmm. and, and it's not just that you're you're in the periphery where you're unimportant, but I mean you've had you've gotten into some trouble on college campuses. You said once you needed police protecting you because of messages you've gotten. Yes, I think the, uh, the the administrators at uh, Oberlin and Georgetown this was last year became very concerned because of the frantic and, and uh, sort of wild Facebook postings before I came to campus and decided that I needed a police escort at uh, Oberlin. And I mean, I don't feel that I did. The kids didn't seem violent, they, but they were rowdy. They were angry. They were the first two rows were filled with young women who had. Um, uh, tape on their mouths. They, they tape their mouths shut. I don't know what that meant. I didn't. I just should have asked. I should have taken a picture. <laughs> Fortunately, there were a lot of pictures of the antics, and you know they set up a safe space where people could flee if they were triggered by my comments. And um, thirty students and a therapy dog fled to a safe room. Um, do you think that the students really needed a safe space? No, that's ridiculous. It, you can't if you go to college. Uh, you, the idea of having uh, to be protected from ideas is ridiculous. And I mean, I stipulate there may be no, it, uh, no, I'm not going to stipulate it. It cannot be. There can't be someone frightened of a philosophy professor. It doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. It's all, but it's not about protecting fragile people. It's a means of shutting down debate. It's a means of it, well, it's psychodrama and uh, coercion, I think. Yeah, what really scares me is I, I think 
there's some people, I don't know the term, the radical left or whatever, who are going to try to get around the First Amendment by declaring views they don't like as either hate speech or sexual harassment or racial harassment. And they'll claim that it's not just speech, you're imposing this massive psychological harm on me. So that's why you're, you shouldn't be allowed to say this anywhere near me. I know. And they've turned it into an issue of safety. Yeah. And that's that's very new. You know, there's all sorts of uh, inventive arguments for shutting down free speech and free expression. But I, this is this one's new. <laughs> and uh, I think it's unnerving for administrators because they're risk averse and 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 fear litigation. And now, of course, I think a lot of this was tr- triggered to use the word. <laughs> by the U.S. Department of Education sending out that Dear Colleague letter in 2011, mm-hmm. reading colleges the riot act about harassment and and uh, sexual predation and warning them that if they didn't take a uh, complaint seriously, they could lose their, their funding. Now, I can understand the Department of Education being alarmed if schools weren't protecting students from serious crimes like sexual assault, but... The way they wrote the letter, it made it seem as if anybody made any comment of a sexual nature that upset someone, that would be considered harassment. That's not a legal definition of harassment. I mean, that's not actionable that if a student tells an off-color joke and another student hears it and so forth. But the schools have interpreted it that way. And I think that mentality of, you know, hyper-protectiveness of students from something that upsets them in about, you know, something that's uh, related to sexuality, I think they've expanded it now, even something that upsets them politically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and of course, you can always claim if you're upset by something politically that it upset you because of your race or identity or something. Always. It's, it's a very uh, useful <laughs> device for... Um, Again, for just uh, closing down, uh, you know, any kind of normal exchange of ideas on a, a range of issues, uh, as you say, around race and class and gender. It's weird. I mean, now with high-speed Internet access, so many college students are exposed to massive amounts of hardcore Internet pornography and probably just accept those images as normal. But yet when they interact you know, on the campus with other students, they have to act like they're Victorian gentlemen or something or they can get in massive amounts of trouble well it's very odd because if the colleges decide had decided all right we're going to restore decorous politesse and everyone will behave uh you know according to the dictates of of um oh what was her name what was the there was a famous uh expert on uh, politeness i can't remember her name but let's say miss manners mm-hmm. <laughs> there was someone before miss manners but this isn't about manners. I mean, it's really uh, it, it, because it does have a political tinge to it. It's, if anyone's conservative, that tends to be considered, you know, if you say anything, you, you could be called a bully. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think can be done about this? It's very worrisome. I don't, I mean, people think that uh, there are conservatives on campus who are going to speak out. There aren't very many. So it's going to have to be liberals. And liberals have not, there are still a lot of liberals, old-fashioned liberals. Mm-hmm. Probably the majority of professors strongly believe in free free speech and free expression and due process, but they don't speak out. 
And that's a problem because they, it's, it, they're going to have to solve the problem or the students are going to have to. But if I don't know. I mean, just yesterday I heard that the I think it was the soccer team, the male soccer team at Harvard in 2012. They started this uh, among themselves on Facebook, not on Facebook, but some some private email. They were uh, evaluating and rating the looks of the girl, of the female soccer team. Now, uh, evaluating members of the opposite sex is something both sexes have been known to do. Yes. <laughs> but I can imagine, you know, 18, 19-year-old, 20-year-old boys having fun, talking about these girls. Some of the language was explicit. Okay. Had I been, you know, the soccer coach, I mean, I don't know that I would have said anything because I'm, I'm just not sure it was it's such a terrible thing to have done. But all right, if it Tell them to apologize if the girls found out and they were offended. The team has been, um, they, they can, they were about, I think, poised to win the championship. They, they've been suspended and they cannot play. I mean, you know, sort of the most serious punishment short of being disbanded. And uh, all because of this. And so what I see also happening is a kind of policing of, of male sexuality on campus. I mean, there was a time where it might have been gay students who would be in trouble, I mean, a long time ago. But now it's a free it's sort of open season on the sexuality of, of heteronormative males. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if, if a, a man offends a woman the way he asked her out, even if he asked her out in a very polite way, that can be a form of sexual harassment. Anything that makes her feel... Um, you know, unhappy or, I mean, it's sort of, it's up, it's based, it's feelings based. Mm -hmm. And again, it goes back to this new regime where they've, it's, they've sort of weaponized the feelings of the most hypersensitive people on campus and, and people whose feelings can be driven by their politics. Maybe this is all a very clever plan by websites like Tinder to force the, everyone just to date on Tinder where you you know, you know never find out if the other person likes you unless you like them first, so you don't have to worry about rejection. <laughs> I so feel is... sorry for boys because they do have to initiate. It's still the tradition, mm. and, and there's no evidence that has changed. There's no evidence males or females want it to change. That is what happens, is the males usually are, you know, initiate, and... So, and they, you know, it was always risky. They can be slapped down, <laughs> but now they can be slapped down and brought up on charges. So, yeah, yeah I, I teach game theory, and I often te talk about dating. And I, one year, a student said something very interesting. She said that sometimes she'll get insulted if a very unattractive man asks her out, because he's saying that he thinks I think that you're in my league. But if that lowers her opinion of herself, it makes her feel worse about herself. Now, she wasn't saying yes. that guy should be punished, but that sort of make, made a lot of sense that one of the ways you can be offended by someone, you know, asking you on a date is to say, wait a minute, this guy should realize I'm way above him. He doesn't. I feel <laughs> awful. That's sexual yeah. harassment. Yeah, well, it, it's complicated, people. <laughs> but to uh, now put all of this uh, under the, you know, it, it, to let the deans and, and now an increasingly uh, uh numerous group of of uh, gender operatics on campus monitoring this these complicated interchanges it's um it's bound to go badly and it has uh, we have countless numbers of young men who've been brought up on 
ludicrous charges taken through what looked to me like kangaroo courts thrown out of school as with, with sexual predator stamped on their permanent record. Yeah, and they're changing the standards of proof, aren't they, for what it... Oh, they've lowered it to preponderance of evidence. If there's more than a 50% chance it happened, then you, you rule against him. Now, if you add to this another new definition, which is they're now calling it sexual assault on some campuses, if two people have sex and they've been drinking. And so I, I was once in a debate about these changes with a professor at the University of Virginia. And I said, but what if they've both been drinking the same amount? No one forced anyone. They just had drinks. Would you say they raped each other? Could it be possible? And she said, yes. <laughs> so I find it all ridiculous and actually terrible for victims of sexual violence because they need good research, they need good definitions, because that's the only way we'll find good policies and, and find ways mm -hmm. to protect people. Mm -hmm. But um, that's not the direction we're going. We're going, it's more about policing male sexuality. Mm -hmm. What do you think about, some Some men have suggested a counter strategy would be for men to like act as if this wasn't supposed to be just one-sided. I mean, the rules have to be written so they're gender neutral. So, you know, men, if they overhear women saying something sexual, they file the complaint just to put the colleges in a difficult position. Oh, we're going to see more of that. It already There was already one case I read about, and I felt I often feel sorry for the guys. I felt sorry for this young woman, and she was brought up on charges and humiliated, and she was forward. Mm -hmm. She, you know, with this boy and kind of came on to him or some, I don't know, I won't go into the details, but it was this human situation. It was complicated, and they were both drinking, and, you know, it doesn't. It if you want to if you want to stop all of this, then then you have to do something the colleges would be frightened to do because kids wouldn't go there. Is to cut you know do something about the binge drinking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, drinking is is very very common on campuses, and colleges aren't willing to throw students out for that if they just drink. So they can't really well, deter yeah, students from I mean, drinking. Well, yeah, I don't think they should. But on the other hand, it's ridiculous not to admit there's a connection between bad behavior and drinking and foolish behavior and miscommunication. That is most of what the alleged rape culture is. It's miscommunication, regrets, bad judgment, bad hookups. Yeah. And so mixed with some some genuine, you know, uh, situations of genuine crimes. I mean, it's just, mm -hmm. but for the most part, at least from the best research that I've seen, it looks as though that's what's going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, college campuses mostly are, are relatively safe compared to the rest of America, aren't they? Oh, absolutely. And uh, there's, it's ridiculous to say that they're, as they do, people claim regularly that it's the most dangerous places for a young woman on college campus. It's actually, I mean, depends on the campus, but if for most part, for the most part, it's the safest place. And I imagine, I mean, the rhetoric about like, what is it, what, some people claim one in five women in college will be raped. I mean, if people don't know about colleges and they really think that's true, then you definitely don't go to college if you're a woman. You certainly don't let your daughter go to a college where she has a one in five chance of being raped. What parent would send a, a child to such a place? But that figure would mean that we were as dangerous as, you know, war-torn Congo or something. Yeah, and uh, it, it's it's uh, an exaggeration, but right. But as we said in the beginning, 
the gender scholars are very powerful, and they they have created these studies, and others are now replicating them by using their methods. And the method is you ask a non-representative sample of students vaguely worded questions or a mix of straightforward and vaguely worded questions, and you will get an epidemic if you want, if that's your goal. Is there any way to to fight back against this? I mean, if you try, you'll be accused of like being pro-rape, so it's... I know you risk being called a rape apologist, which is yeah, a, a horrible, horrible thing to be. Right. It's, but uh, it, it doesn't take much to earn that uh, epithet. So I, I'm, you know, they've called me that because I've questioned the statistics. But what I, and I, I know I have this uh, series, The Factual Feminist. Mm-hmm. I make videos and I correct feminist myths. Uh, if there were myths on the other side, if I, I mean, it's, I've, if I saw men's groups, making all sorts of false uh, statistical claims about women. I wouldn't like that either, but uh, I don't see that. And there may be some men's groups that do that, but they don't get put in textbooks and repeated Mm -hmm. by journalists. These Mm -hmm. do. The feminist myths are everywhere. And and one of the other myths is that women never, ever lie about rape, which means if you only need to show preponderance of evidence, then a guy being accused on campus, if... You start with a prior belief that women never lie or almost never lie, then he would almost need video evidence that rape didn't occur. Exactly. So. That's right. And there are committees. I've seen materials uh, on campus where the uh, the tribunal that's uh, selected to evaluate, you know, to rule on a rape case, they're given materials and they're given all these statistics. They're told, you know, that one in five women is raped. Uh, that are raped and that uh, only two there's a statistic that only two percent of rape claims are false (laughs) where did that come from how would anyone know that what do they even mean by a rape claim and what does it mean to be proven false i mean all of these they're just there are many many different answers to those questions this was i think it was from a a book uh, by susan brown miller in the 1970s and i'm not sure she had a source for it but there is no source for that claim but Committees on our campuses today hear that statistic. Yeah, and fewer and fewer um, college students are, are men. The percent of men in college keeps going down. Do you, you think this might be playing a role that men are looking at this if they're on the margin and like, why would I take a chance in going to such an environment? Well, I think it's the, I think what happened is the schools became more and more female dominated, and there was the so there are more young women on campus. There are more. Uh, women in the you know administration and and certainly the more the gender studies as you said uh, feminist theorists throughout the campus so you have a very vocal group and some have said we're getting a what they call a pink police state a pink police state <laughs> mm-hmm. and yeah it, it's it's like the people want to have power i want to be able to control and destroy other people's lives if you well, see this is the thing i don't understand i was a feminist and still am in the 70s when i became a feminist i didn't want to destroy anybody's life it was about emancipation it was a positive thing <laughs> and it wasn't about hurting people gratuitously or being snarky and angry and aggrieved and uh and this whole thing it, it it's the opposite of liberation it's, it's repressive and, and again that's why i reject the idea that this is um, some kind of exciting revolutionary um, you know sort of uh, uh, you know uh, 
you know, a group that is at the forefront of a revolution. I don't see that. I see it as uh, reactionary mm -hmm. through and through. What would you do? Imagine a Republican governor like Scott Walker from Wisconsin said, you know, I want to stop this craziness. I, you know, I basically have control over the Wisconsin um, colleges, the Wisconsin state colleges. What do you suggest I do? Do you think I should mandate that women's studies departments like hire at least 10% conservatives? He can't do that. I mean, there's academic freedom. You can't. Well, he probably but, could. It's it's not a constitutional idea. He could probably, you know, he could just say, I'll defund the Women's Studies Department unless you show more ideological diversity. He might not want to. It might be a bad idea. But I, I imagine, he, or he could take hiring authority away from them. He could say, you know what, why don't you pick the next 10 studies, the next 10 professors from the Women's Studies Department? I mean, I could see how he could do it if he had some cooperation with department with deans and with department chairs, because then it, you can control the money for hiring. You don't say, oh, I mean, I, actually, this is the way the feminists did it. They typically didn't say, oh, you can't hire men, but they'd say, oh, we'll fund a chair for a woman, mm -hmm. or you know, or they'll say yes if you come to them with a female candidate. And uh, you can have those sorts of things, but you have to have cooperation, uh, or it will be seen as... Uh, Oh, my goodness, the uproar, would, it would be endless, <laughs> the but protest. Would that be a bad thing? I mean, it's really hard to get a job in the humanities and social sciences. So it wouldn't be like everyone would quit their job. I don't know. I, I, I'd have to think about that. I, I'm not sure how a governor could do it. I just remember that um, if I think there, there was some effort for a while in Colorado just to bring some intellectual diversity to campus. Mm -hmm. And the way the, the governor working with the board of trustees, some of, of, I guess it was the University of Colorado, they did organize a program where they brought in more conservative speakers and professors. Um, that's certainly possible. Mm -hmm. But uh, I do think that libertarians, conservatives, and now mainstream liberals have to think about what's happened because the campuses are becoming crazier and crazier. And it, it's not only the antics and the uh, illiberalism, the content of the courses is troubling because the students aren't, they're not studying basics, important things. The classes are carried away with odd agendas, obscure little topics treated, you know, from a paranoid perspective. You know, and and where is you know they might not know the history of the United States they might not know anything about the Renaissance they might not know any of the the Enlightenment philosophers but they'll know all about uh, women writers in the Oklahoma Panhandle. Is this stuff is this kind of um, propaganda filtering down to um, pre-college education? Oh yes, I, I just spoke at Columbia, and a lot of uh, students. And, and, yeah, it was mainly students, recent students, but they, they uh, told me that they had been getting this stuff, this gender propaganda since kindergarten. And they, they'd been going to these uh, posh uh, private schools in New York City, and they get it year after year after year. And then they, some of them found the factual feminists and said, <laughs> oh, my goodness, because they, they know, they have to know every I would say healthy person knows that some of the, these, for example, they'll learn in if this teacher, the high school teacher, takes this intersectional approach. 
It presumes that the United States is racist, white supremacist, colonialist, uh, imperialist, and uh, patriarchal. Mm-hmm. None of those things are true, or they're just—it's just not accurate. There are mm-hmm. many, many faults with this country, but uh, to call it white supremacist is seems odd, and to call it imperialist compared to what exactly, and what do they mean? But they learn that. They have this sort of Howard Zinn view of American history. And so they, and this is done in elementary private schools. And it is early as, uh, you know, the early grades, this paranoid view of their own society. Well, we're recording this show a few days before the presidential election. And right now, Donald Trump has about a 35% chance of winning. Do you think Trump's success is in part due to a backlash to all of this? I think it's part of it because it's hard to know. There are many analyses, and I've given up. I worry worry very much about him winning. I think he's uh, too unstable. Hillary Clinton is, you know, I like the idea of a woman president. I just wish it were a different party. (laughs) But uh, the fact that I have to vote for her is so alarming. But I do, because he's just too uh, unhinged. Mm -hmm. But the popularity is partly because I think there are many people that are so, first of all, just what I was saying is calling the United States white supremacist or Take every other Republican, Romney and John McCain, the left used extreme language to talk about them. Mm-hmm. And so now in, in conservative will hear them doing it about Trump and think it's the same old thing, just hyperbole, exaggeration, crying wolf, overstatement. And I think many people just don't, they hear these stories about Trump, they think it's just a media spin mm-hmm. and uh, they, they can discount it. And often it is. It just in this case, it, it's a lot of. It's not really spin. It's, he's really a worrisome character. Mm-hmm. Do you think that propaganda though can work on a lot of people? Do you think the feminists are influencing public opinion? Out, you know, once the students leave college, you don't have to write what their professor wants to hear. Do you think they keep some of the views they had? Oh, I do because you uh, imagine you're a sensitive young woman and you take these courses. And you're told all of these things, you don't see it exactly, you know, you don't see all of this violence and and racism and and uh, predation, but you've been told that it's there, and then there's uh, it's in the textbooks, and you know, then you you have a lot of in the blogs, it's, it's Twitter hashtags, everyone's telling stories about how awful things are out there, and you be you get a distorted view of reality. And it's reinforced over and over again. And credit anyone that comes along and says, well, this isn't true, uh, they're called a crank. And so why would you question it? Now, it may be that when they get out into the real world, they're, you know, they'll just have to encounter and, and cope with reality and change their views. But I don't know. I'm worried that they're going to come out, come and start changing the workplace the way they change the colleges. Mm-hmm. Where people will be afraid to talk, to ask someone out on a date, or to make a mild right, joke. Right, there'll be anonymous uh, reporting, and you know, people will be afraid to say anything. And you know, it's it's just so unfortunate. Yeah, I, I'm especially worried that this is sort of degrading what we think of as truth. 
that if there's one big area where people who disagree with you are considered evil, you can apply that to everything else. And suddenly the idea well, of right. someone disagreeing with you because of your marketing analysis, well, they're just a bad person and they're doing it because of your gender or race or something. Well, and that's that, you know, we see that. I mean, at first people were worried that with uh, the Internet and you know, people could have their own media and, you know, their own sources of information. And now it's almost as if you, you can have your own set of facts mm -hmm. and you won't, you know, you don't have to listen to anybody that has different facts. And everyone has to take into account confirmation bias. We all have it. And you have to be very careful and open to the possibility that you're wrong. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't I just think that's key to being a to being rational. Yeah, and, to, it's, uh, it's hard. It's hard for everyone. But I think conservatives and on campus, it's better. You're better because you are constantly challenged. And so you have to keep your arguments <laughs> in good repair and you have to be aware of the other side. But if you're a very left wing student, you can go through now, I think many colleges and never be exposed to a different point of view. Mm -hmm. There's some evidence that women have actually become less happy since the 1950s. Do you think feminism by, you know, creating creates sort of a negative placebo effect by saying all these things are horrible, you're being discriminated against and this causes women to be less fulfilled with their lives? Yeah, I haven't actually looked carefully at that data. I have seen that that's true. And I'm wondering if if this you know, there's just a lot of, of, of divisiveness now and a kind of gender war mentality. And it doesn't seem to be very condu conducive to happiness. And, and uh, you know, I think that uh, the women's movement did a good job in letting women know about the importance of careers. But there, for many women, there's pretty good evidence that they care about having family as much or more, they care about having children and husbands and so forth. And so it, that's all become more difficult for complicated reasons, not because of feminism, but feminism didn't attend to the problem. It's very good at, you know, the current establishment is very good at telling you how to get an abortion or how to, you know, demand daycare. But what if you want to stay with your child? And there's, you know, good, we have good data from the Pew Research Center and from people like uh, Catherine Hakim in, in, in England, about women's preferences. And the majority do prefer, do place more of a priority on home and family. Mm -hmm. And it's harder to get now than before. Most women have to work full time. And you don't see the women's movement viewing that as a hardship. They view it as victory. But what if it's not victory for everyone? <laughs> well, what is the view to academic feminism, to a woman who goes to college but then decides having a lot of kids is more important than a career. Well, I mean, they will say, that's fine. We just want women to have choices. But it doesn't seem like that. If you look at the women's studies text, as uh, Christine Rosen is a historian in, in Washington, D.C., and, and, and she wrote an analysis of women's studies textbooks. I think she looked at the five or six leading textbooks. Now, this was a few years ago. Maybe it's changed for the better. I see no evidence of that, but maybe it has but she found um, fairly negative attitudes about uh, conventional marriage and motherhood. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, it does, I think I, I just don't see evidence that it's there's much support for those choices. And those for many women, those would be more conducive to happiness. Mm -hmm. 
one of the stranger views of academic feminism is that like, the difference we all the differences we observe between boys and girls or, or men and women are like because of society that genetics plays no role in different outcomes yeah that seems to me to be just um scientifically uh, kind of scientific illiteracy because if you study biology and look at the you know the role of, of hormones and, and then just use the evidence of just common sense mm -hmm. of men and women and and how they differ well they will always say oh well that was because of the patriarchy and the social construction of gender but we we see similarities between let's say choices of toys uh, we see it you know boys tend to get towards gadgets and girls tend to towards you know caring play we see that even in uh, in primates <laughs> There's similarities. So, you know, what, is it a social construction if female, uh, you know, vervet monkeys want the, the, the females tend towards, you know, playing with a little baby doll and the, the males go to a gadget? It, it's uh, we see it. We, see, we also know that you can even in animal studies, if you can see the effects of sort of male hormones, if you uh, expose a, a female primate to, to male hormones, you'll increase aggression and uh, diminish uh, a nurturing play. And we even have evidence in human beings. A mother nature has provided a, a, a group of, uh, of girls uh, who have a congenital adrenal hyperplasia. They were exposed to high levels of male hormones uh, in the gestation period. And they, have, um, they play and, and have the same uh, interests as boys, as children. They're, they've been masculinized. And I mean, and there's difference of MRI scans of, of male and female brains. It's yeah, I don't know about those. See, the thing is, I, I'm always hesitant because there were a lot of initially there was a lot of excitement about the MRIs and mm -hmm. showing all sorts of things. And now I think it's less certain. I mean, the the the, the social constructionists are right to say that we don't understand the brain and there is plasticity, mm -hmm. so we have to hesitate. But they have to hesitate too mm -hmm. <laughs> to rush in and say it's all society. Uh, it's, I think it's obviously a mix, a complicated mix of biology and an environment. And and so what? Mm -hmm. Why why the the um, this idea that we have to undo it and that that the conventional uh, you know preferences that they seem to think that they're toxic or something children have to be saved from and. Children, you know, typical little girls, not all little girls, typical little girls do enjoy nurturing play and theatrical, uh, imaginative play, playing house, playing school, and the boys go for rough and tumble play, you know, typical little boy. Or if they have imaginative games, they're superheroes vanquishing enemies. And that seems to be just a part of their healthy development. Yeah, and it's very difficult to get kids to enjoy doing something that they don't really enjoy doing. You can't really very push someone difficult. to play with a toy they don't yeah. want to play with. And what I find funny is in some of these, this was a school in Sweden. They wanted it to be gender neutral. <laughs> they weren't going to even mention, you know, they didn't call the kids boys and girls. They were just <laughs> buddies and all the toys were gender neutral. But they found they had to constantly police, especially the boys, because they would turn, you know, I don't know, sticks in the garden for tomatoes, and they would turn them into swords, and <laughs> they would use the dolls as weapons, and so it took a lot of policing to to, liber to liberate the children. Mm -hmm. and so I find it uh, 
obviously ironic. Yeah, on your factual feminist videos, you made a really interesting economic argument that the richer a society is, the more gender differences you might see in in terms of life outcomes. Yes, it was. It's fascinating, and it's it now. I and, and since I wrote about it, I've learned there are many other studies that show that the wealthier society is, and the, the more educated and just you know the 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 very wealthy post-industrial egalitarian societies. There are more differences in male-female personalities than you find in, uh, say, a, a rural society and a, a, a pre-industrial society. And the, the, they were so shocked, uh, the researchers, to find this. But they hypothesized that in a society like the United States or Sweden or France, men and women have more uh, opportunity for you know, self-development. So they become who they most want to be. And so you will find women indulging their inner femininity and men their masculinity, not because of oppression, but because of freedom. Mm -hmm. So that's if, if being a computer scientist is the, the highest paying job, if you're really poor, of course you take it no matter what. But exactly. as you get richer, you're like, well, I, I don't really find this interesting. I'm going to be a physical You don't therapist. have to do it. And the, 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 some of the gender activists and in uh, trying to get more women in STEM will say, oh, we're behind, uh, we're behind Mexico and we're behind, we're behind, uh, you know, Pakistan where women and doing, uh, uh, you know, information technology. Well, maybe it's that the women in Mexico have, because for economics, they have to study engineering or uh, computer science because they're, the, they need to do something that guarantees a good income. In the United States, Women study much more than men. They'll study anthropology, field, you know, literature, completely impractical fields. Mm -hmm. uh, you will find more women. Mm -hmm. I, I I remember a, a year or so ago, I had a student who was from Africa. She was from a poor family in Africa, and she was telling me, you know, I can't possibly study art history. I, I want to become an investment banker or do something that earns a lot of money because I'm, you know, I'm from a really poor family. Anything else would be irresponsible. And a lot of people didn't understand that. Right. So in the United mm -hmm. States, you can see, well, what do people do? What do men and women do under conditions of freedom, prosperity? Mm -hmm. You know, they, they can do what they want within, you know, I mean, I, I don't want to exaggerate how well off everyone is, but you look at some of the elite schools, look at Princeton. And what you find is that uh, there's a, just a huge difference in what they major in and certain majors the gender difference is extraordinary, like art history compared to, uh, you know, computer science or engineering. How much of that do you think is due to genetics? I think there's something to it. I think it, it has to do with preferences. I think women are drawn to fields that they find. I mean, women care about personal. They care about jobs. They care about pursuits that are personally fulfilling more than men do that are more can be a little more practical again that could be necessity but it's also they've you know if you look at uh, I found it very interesting to look at uh, the research that's done um, by experts on vocation you know the people they bring into high schools or colleges to vocational psychology what field should you go into and they'll ask questions like what would you rather do um, put a machine together you know take take it apart put it together again or would you rather talk to someone about their problems? And you just find a lot more 
uh, I mean, you find both men and women willing to do both, but you find a lot more men interested in that machine and a lot more women wanting to talk about problems. This is reflected in, in magazines. It's reflected in, the, you know, what people do for entertainment. Uh, men and women, you know, do, you could, you'll go broke trying to, you know, have a gender-neutral magazine. Uh, it, it, it can happen, but mostly they're not gender neutral. You'll find that uh, they cater to one sex or the other because there's a difference in what interests people. And this difference is probably hardwired into us. I think it, there has to be something biological that might, um, you know, one theory I've heard is, uh, this was uh, Simon, Simon Baron Cohen at uh, Cambridge University, that... Um, he has said that, for example, um, that children with uh, the aut autism, he said, mm -hmm. it might be the extreme male brain. Because, uh, as we know, autistic children and autistic people uh, have a, sometimes a, the high-functioning high autistics can have a, a fascination with systems mm -hmm. and memorizing numbers, and but, but low affect and uh, poor communication skills and low emotional intelligence, but, but uh, sometimes a uh, genius level of, of, of mathematical ability and systematizing. And, and a suggestion was that maybe t testosterone, testosterone can, uh, in, a, in the masculinization process, uh, suppresses the you know, emotional connection and increases this, the, the systematizing capacities. It's just a theory, but it, it does explain a lot <laughs> the current, you know, sort of configuration of men and women in, in the workplace. I have to imagine the, the autistic college student is going to be the one who's going to get in the most trouble with the gender police. Actually, I have thought about that, that uh, there could be um, one thing that could save some young men <laughs> would be, uh, you know, protecting uh, people that are neuroatypicals. Ah, if, they, yeah. if they count in the intersectional uh, pyramid, or well, I guess it's a matrix right. of oppressed groups that are to be have to be respected and uh, given a voice, and other people have to remain silent and check their privilege. But then what? Uh, a lot, and I've heard from young men who are uh, do suffer, or are you know would be on the Asperger mm. uh, spectrum somewhere, and they've told me that they they have a problem and that. They just don't know how to talk, in, you know, in the way that people expect them to, and they come off as being very blunt or rude, mm -hmm. and they're they're worried about being accused. <laughs> yeah, I, I can I can certainly imagine, especially if you're you're asking someone on a date, and where most men would could tell by your facial expression, the answer is going to be no. So just you know, pretend you're not asking her on a date. If you you don't pick up on that kind of thing, you'll follow through, and you'll insult uh, you, them. Yes, and... absolutely. Yeah, it's happened. <laughs> yeah. What do you think of the, the thesis that Larry Summers got in big trouble for, that there's a higher variance in ability among men than Oh, men? yes, yes, that's right. I, uh, that's true. It's just true. If you get to give IQ tests at uh, men and women, it's, it's not the case that the average man is more intelligent than the average woman, so men shouldn't run off uh, <laughs> thinking they're superior. They're probably not. But uh, at the very high end of the ability distribution, and people with freakishly high IQs, there are more men. It's something like four to one. Mm -hmm. And uh, if, but at the other extreme, uh, you also will find more men. You'll find more men who are uh, with with learning disabilities and re retardation, 
And uh, so Mother Nature was fair in the sense that it's balanced, but uh, it's also it's also true that men appear to have better mathematical skills cross culturally at the very high end, the highest performers in almost every country. There are only one or two exceptions, um, and those are always changing. So that may be just something local going on, but there seems to be an advantage for men in mathematics and women in the verbal skills. And in every country in the world, women are more literate and, and uh, dominate in every country um, at the very high end in perform performance on uh, skills in reading and writing. Mm -hmm. Imagine in the next 10, 15 years, we will find out the genetic basis for intelligence. So a lot of these arguments will get resolved. People might ignore the results, but we'll still, if you care, you'll probably be able to figure out what's happening. Yeah, well, I just, yeah, the it's so become so politicized <laughs> let's mm -hmm. hope that it gets sorted out and and so what so if mm -hmm. if there's a difference between the sexes i think that's a good thing mm -hmm. i just don't understand but you see they have conjured all these statistics about how horrible it is to be a woman that you lose your self-esteem and you you're going to be mistreated and cheated and you'll have an eating disorder and all that, mm -hmm. but they've, they've exaggerated these victim statistics. Mm -hmm. These are all problems, but I think they've been misunderstood and hyped up, and there's just too much spin. And overall, would I say it's better to be a man than a woman in American mm -hmm. society? I would not. I think it's a complicated mix of benefits and burdens. You can't say who's better off. Both have huge advantages. Both have disadvantages. And I wish we had a a gender equality movement that was addressing the, the, you know, the injustices or unfairnesses or whatever we want to call them for both sides, mm -hmm. both sexes. Although, I don't know, I, I think women on average have it better. If you look at I mean, life expectancy, is that's probably the most important difference. And then rates yeah, of imprisonment. Do. I mean, I, I've always they're... thought so. I mean, I never wanted to be a man. <laughs> and I mean, I just, I didn't even, I never even thought boys were smarter until... <laughs> And until 12th grade, they, then they began to show up. And <laughs> mm -hmm. But before that, I, I, I just didn't ever, I never thought, I thought, I just didn't think that. But uh, apparently there's all this research that, you know, girls feel like shortchanged and, and they're ignored in fourth and fifth grade. I, they, they just can't be true. They do so much better. They get mm -hmm. better grades. <laughs> the teachers like them better and they're mm -hmm. more likely to go to college. So. Could it be, though, in STEM classes that boys and girls respond differently to different material? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's one thing. If you want to interest girls in science, say engineering, something, you, you really do have to show them how it helps people in very concrete ways, and that will get their interest. But if it's just introduced sort of abstractly in a dry way, it won't. But it's the same with boys. If you want to interest them in literature... Uh, you probably have to have that be a field where they they see themselves, you know, they competing, especially with other boys. Mm -hmm. um, and I think you get very high, amazing results in sort of the British, the boys' public schools. They're called public schools. They're private schools. Mm -hmm. The elite schools in England, because they're all male schools, and the boys are competing with each other to be literate, to be witty. To be erudite and magnificent results. We, you know, we end up having, you know, so many of them come here and edit our magazine. <laughs> the British male, uh, the females are very good too, but the males, uh, it's unusual to have the males with those. And, and you also had it in uh, Judaism, because you had the, the Talmudic training and the very high levels of 
of uh, verbal expression and argument. So it's very good when men are forced to do it, and they view it as a an arena where they want to compete. But we don't do that in our public schools at all, and the boys just, they're way behind, way behind in literacy. Yeah, it's certainly true. My 11-year-old son, he likes to win at everything. I mean, we'll go to watch a play, and there'll be like three different scenes and they'll say which scene was the best was mine the best did we win <laughs> that's there what matters a school, there was a school and in, in west virginia a public school but there was there had been a a change in the education uh, department provision you were allowed to ha experiment with single sex classes mm -hmm. in this west virginia school the maybe it was a whole school district the boys were so far behind they were desperate so they they had special classes for the boys and special classes for the girls and they had something called uh, Battle of the Books. And it was sort of like Jeopardy, and they have to read books and then answer questions. And the teams began competing more fiercely. And then the boys wanted extra reading <laughs> over the summer. And the teacher said, I'd never heard a, uh, any student, let alone a boy, want extra reading. Well, the ACLU went in and sued the school district because they said single-sex classes were, by definition, sexist and they brought in some experts that claimed it was gender apartheid and on and on. And the, and the school couldn't afford the lawsuit, so they stopped it. Ugh. So that that's the sort of, uh, you know, just mischief that's going on, worse than mischief. I mean, it's really harmful not to acknowledge that there's a difference. But anyway, it was to answer your original question, doesn't that mean there'd be special ways? Yes, there are some very ingenious ways to, to get interest girls in math. But and I think we should try them. And I also think we should have ingenious ways to interest boys mm -hmm. in uh, in reading. But you have to admit there's a difference before you even bother, and we don't. Mm -hmm. I hope we move to more computer-based education where it'll be able to individualize it for everybody. That's, That's where it has to go. Mm -hmm. And have master teachers. You know, there are teachers that are geniuses at teaching boys. Teachers that know can reach the the most disaffected, disengaged young man. And uh, I'm thinking that the hope is to, to have more, you know, cyber education, as you said. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I really appreciate you being a guest on my show. Let me just ask you one final question. What's your prediction for what the campus climate's going to be like in 10 years? Do you think it could get a lot worse? It might get better? You know, I don't know because I, I'm, I'm pessimistic in the sense that I don't see where the change can come from because... I've been in this for years. I mean, I, I was, as I said, I started criticizing it in the 80s. In the early 90s, we won the arguments. And we had the New York Times on our side then, and, the, and the, in New York Magazine, and the New Yorker, and now not so much. So that's not good. And yet we still lost because even though we won the argument, and I think we had the better, just better positions, the other side quietly assumed all the assistant professorships. Mm -hmm. So they are there. They're not going anywhere. It's tenure, it has these ideas have tenure, <laughs> so that makes me pessimistic. On the other hand, it can't go on. First of all, it's going to be too expensive to to police the intimate lives and the conversations of, of the undergraduates. So they're going to have to keep gro you know, growing the number and spending millions and millions of dollars on the you know the gender apparatchiks, and then and then. Uh, the classes are more and more esoteric and arcane and bizarre. 
what how are people going and it's getting more and more expensive so it has to end the bubble must burst <laughs> but okay. uh, so maybe the hope is cyber education mm-hmm. but I but still I believe in the college education so I I didn't answer your question as you can see I just don't know okay well thank you very much I appreciate your time thank you okay bye bye